The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Looks like there are a couple of new people here today, if this is your first time. Uh, just so you know, there is a bathroom downstairs, second door on the right. <clears throat> so after sitting for about 35 minutes, I usually give a talk, and then we have time for discussion and end at 8.30 on Sundays. And I've been giving a series of talks for the last month or so <clears throat> on <clears throat> excuse me, what's called in Buddhism the seven factors of awakening. And it's just the way the Buddha described the mind that's in this wonderful balance in a way that allows the mind to see things that it wouldn't otherwise see. So normally we go through life with our minds not so much in balance, and so we tend to miss a lot. And what we do notice, we tend to see in terms of what we've already seen. It's like, in a way, we're interpreting our life or interpreting the particular experience in terms of what we already know. Oh, this seems like that. And so we massage it so that it makes sense in terms of what we've already experienced, what we already know. So in a way, we're not capable of learning too much with our normal mind. But with mindfulness, and remember, mindfulness is just the word that represents or that points to an experience, this kind of balance that I'm talking about. And with mindfulness, then, because the mind isn't under the influence of its preconceived ideas, then it's, in a sense, it's opening, even though it may be an ordinary experience, like breathing in. You know, well, we've breathed in many, many times, of course. But if the mind is free from all of our preconceived ideas about the in-breath, then if we're mindful of an in-breath, it's like we're watching or knowing it for the first time. And even the concept of breath isn't affecting the awareness or the experience of what's being known. So I've been suggesting like one way to remember this balance we can use the word mindfulness, and we can use a specific definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness can be defined as a not forgetting, and we're not forgetting the way it is, or we're not forgetting this is how it is now. And as I've suggested the last few weeks, think about how rare that moment is where we're going through life, and not only are we aware but we're aware that this is how it is. It's like not just being here at Common Ground and hearing me give a talk, but there's an awareness that right now sitting is like this, or whatever particular mood is in the mind, whatever particular reaction, or it's like this now. So that awareness of that the way it is is the way that it is, that's pretty rare that we have that, in, in a sense, it's almost like another dimension to how it is or to what's happening. And this is something definitely worthy of respect. 
In a way, it's like the difference between being blind and being able to see. Now, at first, it doesn't seem so profound, you know. It's like, well, what's so big about knowing that this is how it is? But we begin to notice when the more that this is alive for us or real for us, we begin to notice how it, it just creates choices that otherwise wouldn't be there. In a way, the mind or the way that we respond in a moment, it just has so much more nimbleness if there's an understanding, oh, this is how it is. And, and I think the calling it, uh, referring to it as blindness is actually a useful word. Because when we're not mindful, we're blind in the sense that various patterns will arise, like um, we'll see something we like, and then the mind will react to that, like, oh, I need to get that. And we won't see that reaction. We won't see that this seeing this is pleasant, and we won't see that desires arising. And when the thought arises, oh, I need to get that, we won't see that in the sense of, oh, that's just a thought arising. So in a way, we're driving blind because we'll act out our habit energy blindly without any reflection. We're not even aware that it's habit energy. We just think it's me. And in a way, we move through our life as a train of associated thoughts, one thing leading to another, one habit triggering another habit, triggering another reaction, and on and on. And that, in a sense, defines our life. As opposed to being mindful, we're still there. We still see what we're seeing. There's still that reaction in the mind, but there's something extra which is an awareness that this is how it is. This habit of wanting, the thought, oh, I'd be so happy if I could get that. There's an awareness of that, which is very different than just having that thought without any awareness that that thought is there like this. Because then there's the possibility of just leaving it alone. Oh, having the thought, I'd be so happy if I could get this, is like this. And then... We don't have to act on it. We can just feel what it's like to have the thought, boy, I'd be happy if I had that. Or we can act on it. But we don't have to act on it blindly. Like, oh, I have to seek gratification because I have this thought in my mind. Of course, we don't even think that way. We just do it. It's like, you know, the, what are they called, pheromones, the the little sense that different creatures put out that attract, let's say, the opposite sex. You know, and a moth picks up a pheromone half a mile away, and it just starts flying toward it. It doesn't think, hmm, I really would like to mate. It smells like there's some, you know, female moth over here. I'll just go that direction. They're completely driven by instinct. And humans aren't driven exactly that way by instinct, but we are driven by our conditioning, our habits, in very much the same way. Except, as opposed to instinct, there's another possibility for us, which is to wake up to how it is. Without waking up, without seeing this, we drive blindly or we live blindly. So investing in this practice of paying attention, being clear, and we 
uh, he realized two benefits. The first benefit, the most direct benefit, is just learning to be attentive to the body, to sound, to sensation, to thought. Just learning to be attentive, just moving in that direction is inherently peaceful. Just like moving in the direction of reactivity is inherently agitating, if we move in the, dire in the direction of mindfulness, in direct opposition, it's in direct opposition to proliferation and agitation. It's like if we're really here now, present with the experience of the body sitting, present with the hearing, it's not so easy to be worrying about this or judging yourself for being a bad person or whatever else our mind might be doing. If we're really here, present, then the mind can't be engaged in agitating activity. It can't. So in a very direct, simple way, the practice of mindfulness leads to healing. We are abandoning what's unwholesome in the mind and being mindful in any moment. You can just experiment in all the ordinary ways, you know, like really being there when you brush your teeth or really being there, really being in the experience when you drive home tonight. And you'll see that if you just look, so you're really there driving, but because you're practicing mindfulness, you're noticing the effect of really being present with driving too. Because that's also happening. It's not just seeing the cars and turning the wheel and feeling the sensations of the foot pressing on the gas or on the brake. But there's also an awareness. There also can be, if you're awake, you're also going to notice how grounding, how simple, how pleasant it is to be fully in the experience of driving. And this is true whatever it is that we're aware of fully. So this is the first, most immediate benefit from being mindful. It's not so much that driving home is itself somehow great. It's what we're not doing now. If we're fully driving home, then in not doing the worrying and not doing the fantasizing and not doing the comparing, there's a real relief, a real freedom from the mind not doing what it normally does. And then the deeper benefit from mindfulness comes when we develop that skill of being more and more in the moment, more moments of the day, more moments when we're formally sitting in meditation. When we develop that talent or that skill to have moments and some continuity of mindfulness, so not just one moment and then we're lost in distraction, that a moment of mindfulness followed by a moment of mindfulness and maybe stringing a number of those moments together then something else happens, and we usually call that insight. And this is an insight meditation center. So this particular lineage in Buddhism, here in the West, we often refer to, we use the word insight to refer to this tradition, just because it's such a big part of the Buddhist tradition, this intuitive insight that happens for human beings. When the mind's in balance, when there's mindfulness, and there's some continuity to mindfulness, then a deeper healing happens that's uh, more profound than what I described already, just that relief from the mind not engaged in agitated thought, agitating thought. And that deeper insight 
what it is, it's a, a deeper seeing into the experience that uproots the tendency of the mind to take things personally. So in a way, the mind, because it's in this beautiful equipose, this beautiful balance that I talked about earlier, so in a way, that mind, in that moment, or in those moments, it isn't under the influence of anything, like thought. It's just seeing things as they actually are, seeing whatever it is, sensation, sound, thought, as it actually is. And so it's seeing everything as nature, conditional nature, things coming and going due to causes and conditions. It's seeing things not in an isolated way, but part of the whole. And seeing things in that way, that ever-changing, conditional nature of phenomena. Whether you're looking at a thought or the thinking process or the breathing process or sounds being known. So it doesn't matter what particular aspect of our present moment experience we're paying attention to. But if we have that equipose and a continuity of that balanced, mindful seeing or knowing, then to some degree there's insight. We're waking up to Dhamma, the word that we use in Buddhism, Dhamma means the way it is. Not the way we think it is, but the way it actually is. Then it frees the mind from its tendency to take everything personally. To be self-referential. And that's a more profound kind of relief. Because what that does is it chips away or it loosens up the very deep imprint in the mind for self-defense self-protection, self-importance. You know, and that is such a burden to, to move through life with this very deep pattern of self-importance, right? So then all of a sudden it really matters what you guys think of me or what I think of you, right? That's how we go through life. We carry that, you know, and what kind of cars we have and what kind of clothes we have and what kind of bodies we have. And we're always comparing, you know, are we the same? Am I better than you? Are you better than me? You know, is the United States better than Canada? Is Canada better? So it's not just even on, in, on an individual level, but all kinds of levels. And all the competition that ensues, and all the stealing and aggressiveness that comes out of that, the neediness, it sets so many unwholesome things in motion, that tendency towards self-importance, self-protection. So every time there's some continuity of mindfulness, of this balance that I've been talking about, then inevitably, unavoidably, there's a deepening of insight. And generally, this insight is very gradual, almost imperceptible. What we notice, if you've been cultivating it in a systematic way for a long time, many years, what what's noticed isn't so much the sort of powerful mystical insights like big moments where there's like a thunderclap and the mind just changes but mostly what we notice is almost like in hindsight we'll look and we'll go oh that's interesting ten years ago if that had happened to me I would have I would have been like on a commission for weeks I would have been so angry or so upset or so distraught or so reactive and now you know it was painful or it was this or that, but it wasn't. doesn't seem like such a burden. 
So it like, takes the edges. The personality is still the personality. The tendencies of the mind are still the tendencies of the mind. But they're not so diluting. They're not so heavy. The mind or the heart seems to know how to move through life without feeling weighed down and burdened by whatever it is that happens, whatever it is that arises. So this is the real benefit of that deeper insight. It's like everything gets loosened up. And then when a, when a particular circumstance arises for us, so like a really good circumstance, we get promoted or we fall in love with just the right person or whatever, we're not so deluded by that experience. It's just what it is. And when a really negative or difficult experience arises, we're not so deluded by that either. Oh, it's just what it is. So this is how we notice the effect of practice in the more profound way. The more immediate benefit happens immediately. As soon as we have some moments of mindfulness, we will feel the relief of the non-agitation of the mind. Quite literally, you can notice this in your own practice. Quite literally, a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom from what the mind would otherwise be doing. And normally, what our minds otherwise would be doing is worrying or wondering or analyzing or comparing or judging. And even those other things that are relatively wholesome, like analyzing, you know, figuring something out, even those relatively wholesome things are stressful in the mind. Whereas actual mindfulness is not stressful at all. And you'll just notice this. Like when you walk to the car tonight, just really do that. Just give yourself completely to the experience of walking. And you feel how healing it is to just do that. Now, there's some work involved. And I'm going to talk tonight a little bit about the obstacles that arise in mindfulness practice. And often the obstacles arise around the effort that's required. So actually, there's no effort in this balanced mind. Like, to be receptive doesn't take any particular effort. When you're not distracted, it doesn't take any effort to feel the body when the mind is not distracted or to hear these words that I'm saying. So the effort isn't in being mindful. The effort is in not forgetting that as a possibility. Or the effort is in not getting swept away by the habits of the mind. That takes a big commitment, and that's effortful. We're making an ongoing effort to not get lost in our habit energy, which is just to get caught up in discursive thinking, right? That's just our habit energy, to just think of our way through life. So even though mindfulness itself, in a, in a very real sense, is like this inherent or background quality of the mind, it isn't something that somebody has to do. The image that's used, it's like a mirror. The mirror doesn't need to work to reflect or to know what's in front of it. The mirror just, that's its nature, is just to know what's in front of it. And in a very similar way, for the mind, the mind doesn't need to make an, there isn't anybody who has to make an effort for the mind to know. The knowing happens effortlessly, but because of this strong habit, this great momentum towards thinking, worrying, judging, you know, all the different aspects of thinking, it takes a real commitment 
not to get lost in that. So that's why we need a meditation center. That's why we need technique, you know, like returning to the body, feeling the body walking, or returning to the breath in the body. We need these specific techniques to sort of give a framework for this commitment, this commitment to not do what the habit of the mind is to do. And that opens us to realize in little bits and sometimes big bits to realize this effortless nature of the mind to know or this capacity for mindfulness, this inherent capacity for simple, clear, non-judging, non-interfering awareness. This is literally the background of the mind or the background of the heart, but it does take effort even though it's so natural. And of course, in so many ways, the Buddha deconstructed or really broke down, looked clearly at, well, how does this, how does this get obstructed? So this list of five, hinder, the list of five hindrances is really a breakdown of how the mind is, has this momentum towards distraction. What is the fuel for these habits of distraction? What's propelling, driving the d- distractions in the mind? And the Buddha came up with five things, the five hindrances. And I find this a really useful list to memorize. You know, a lot of the lists you don't need, but there are a few lists that are really good to memorize. And the reason the five hindrances are good to memorize is when you're sitting doing your formal meditation and your mind just feels like, completely lost, like you can't even get your bearings. And then you, it's, it's really useful to ask yourself, well, what of these five hindrances are present? Or are any of these five hindrances present that I can see? So the first of the five hindrances, any quality or aspect of craving. So craving means not just desire, but it's more than desire, it's an attachment to desire or an identification with desire. Desire is just natural. It's a natural state for the mind to have. You know, as long as we're alive, there will be desire in the mind. So desire itself isn't the hindrance. It's the identification with the desire. So in Buddhism, you know, in the way that we've translated the words, we usually call, instead of using the word desire, we usually the word, use the word craving or grasping or clinging. So this, all that means is there's desire with identification or attachment. And then the second one is aversion. So the mind, it's just the flip side of a, of a craving. So instead of wanting, we're sort of, there's something unpleasant. And because there is an identification with the unpleasantness, there's a that habit of self-protection. I got to get rid of this. I got to strike out at it. I got to hide from it. So it's either in the form of fear or violence or aggression, irritation. So those two are kind of a pair, attachment and aversion. And then there's restlessness and dullness. And then the fifth is doubt. So restlessness and dullness are just uh, really talking about the energy level in the mind. Too much energy is restlessness, not enough energy is dullness. And when we get 
identified with the restlessness, we take it personally, then it's a problem. If we're just mindful of restlessness, it's not a problem. Same with sleepiness or dullness. If we get identified with the dullness, oh, I am so sleepy, I just need to go to bed. I hate this dullness in the mind. That's a problem. That's a hindrance. But just knowing that dullness is like this, or sleepiness is like this, that's not a problem. It's just knowing sleepiness. You can be mindful of sleepiness without it being a problem. Doubt is one of the more tricky ones because doubt is really confusing. We think, oh, i got to do something to get rid of this doubt. I have to be clear. But actually, doubt is just doubt. Right? Sometimes things are just confusing. That can be okay, right? Oh, confusion's like this. So I'll talk more in detail about the last three, but tonight I'll spend a little time talking about attachment and aversion. Really the two main obstacles to practice, to mindfulness. <clears throat> so one of the ways that we feel attachment, of course, is when we sit down, for example, to do our meditation practice, we might get attached to the idea of, of being with the breath or being still, like not moving the body, or sitting up straight. You know, I'm a yogi, I'm a meditator, I should be sitting up straight. Or, you know, impressing. You know, we could be looking all around, but then somebody comes and so we're like, <laughs> we want them to think we're a really, you know, good meditator or something. So it's really it's seeing how there's a somebody who wants something. That's really what attachment or craving is. When there's a sense, when you're watching or aware, you're aware that there's a somebody who wants something. And then we know what to do, right? What do we do? We practice being mindful of that experience of a somebody wanting something. And then you can name it even. Sometimes it's really helpful to name it in your mind. Oh, this is craving. This is wanting. And it's like this. When, when you say, and it's like this, whether you actually say those words in your mind or not, there's a, a turning. So this is what I meant, or maybe I didn't say it. I meant to say it tonight, that mindfulness is not passive. There's something hyper-energetic about mindfulness. And what that hyper-energetic thing is, is an intention to want to understand. Remember, I talked about the balance being both a sense of ease and relaxation on the one hand, and alertness or brightness on the other hand. So one of the aspects of the brightness is this deep intention to want to understand the nature of what's being known. Not in an analytical sense, not in an intellectual sense, like what is this like, where does this fit in my conceptual universe? Oh, this is like that. That's not what I mean by understanding. It's really like a movement towards intimacy, wanting to get really close. So what is it when the mind really knows craving? What is it? And what we find when we're willing to stay relaxed with craving, but also this intention to understand it deeply, to be intimate with it, what we understand is craving is unpleasant. Craving is tension, it's suffering, it's a weight on the heart. And that's insight. That uproots the tendency towards craving. 
Because when we crave something, we don't feel the suffering, right? So think about something you want, something that you think you need to be happy, whatever that is for you. Vacation home that you can get away from the craziness of your life or the perfect partner. Or, right? So we think about what it is we want. Now, if we allow ourselves to be superficial in our awareness, we get seduced by the content of our desire. You know, we think of the vacation home, the beautiful... I was just up north of Ely on this beautiful place, uh, Camp de Nord, a YMCA camp up there. Really tremendously peaceful, especially because it was uh, just recently, so there w- nobody was there but our party. And um, so you think about one of those really beautiful, tranquil places, and you can get seduced by that thought, Right? So you're, you're imagining the beauty of that place, you know, and the peacefulness of that place. And because of the power of our imagination, in a way, the mind gets exclusive. It only is knowing in that moment the beauty, the image of the beauty and the tranquility. What it's not feeling, what we're not aware of, is the tension involved in that mind fixating on that image. Because actually, we're not in that beautiful place. We're not in that tranquil place. We're right here, in this body, craving something. And that is stressful. That's a contraction in the heart. Now, see, this is different, right? Like, even imagining something simple like being able to crawl into your bed tonight. You know, we can go, ah, wouldn't that be? But actually, although the image is pleasant, the craving for that experience is unpleasant. So... If we are willing to be mindful of craving, of this hindrance, you will see the unpleasantness of the craving, and it will drop. Craving only continues in ignorance. No human being with full awareness, full mindfulness craves. Because craving doesn't make sense. It only makes sense when we're not paying attention. You know... And this is really clear when we think about craving to the nth degree. You know, somebody who is completely obsessed or when we're completely obsessed with wanting to get something. I mean, it's so clearly suffering when you see somebody like that or when you know yourself in that position. But what we want to do is step this back so we see even the very, what seemingly wholesome kind of wanting, even that is stressful. You know, even imagining world peace and craving it is stressful. It's the thought of world peace isn't stressful. That craving, getting identified with that and craving it, that's stressful. It isn't helpful. <coughs> so in our practice, the great thing about having a specific form for our practice, like I sit down... Take a moment to get stable, to remind all the places that I hold tension to relax. You know, like for me, it's like really reminding my shoulders to release, my jaw, mouth to release. You know, and then I'll take a couple breaths and I'll settle in. And then I'll feel the body. If there's any obvious pain in the body, I'll pay attention to that. Allow it to be, not resist it. 
And then eventually I'll feel my breath in my body and I'll note, notice the in and the out of each breath and I'll feel that settling down. And I'll establish some mindfulness but to whatever degree is possible on that day. Some continuity of attention. You know, the mind will wander and I'll bring it back and I'll try to bring it back in a gentle but persistent way. And the great thing about having that particular form is it using something neutral like the attention to the body or the attention to the breath in the body is it it's a container that allows for the deepening of mindfulness that beautiful balance that i've been talking about so then when attachment or craving does arise it's met with that balance that great balance sensitivity that's right there because i've been developing it with the breath or with sensations in the body so the mind is a very refined instrument right now. It's not its gross, unrefined, superficial instrument that we normally have during the day. But it's more refined. It's more sensitive. It's more clear and bright. So then when attachment comes in, and I start getting attached, like a little image flips, flicks through my mind, like, oh, tomorrow I get to do blank. You know, oh, won't that be nice? And then... Because the mind is balanced, it sees the image and it feels, it knows the attachment, the identification with that pleasant image or that pleasant memory. Ah, and it feels the contraction. The image the Buddha used is, there's this great sutta where he talks about it in different ways, but one way he talks about it is if you have a big bowl and you feel it to the very top, he talks about how if a, a strong person tipped the ball, no matter what direction a person tipped the ball, water would immediately flow out. And that's how he, he uses that image for the mind that's mindful, that balance. So it's like the awareness is right to the very edge. And the image he uses is that a crow would be able to drink out of it, you know, because it, the water's right there at the edge. And it's like the mind is completely full. So if attachment comes in, or if aversion comes in, the mind, the awareness, just will flow right there. It's just at the ready to know whatever it is that arises in the moment, effortlessly. And in that, the, in that same discourse, he talks about, in, in kind of detailed, in a detailed way, <clears throat> uh, a chariot with a good charioteer with all the accoutrements, you know, that the charioteer needs, sitting at a crossroads where the road goes off and roads go off in different directions. And just like a chariot, you know, with a good strong horse and all roped up in just the right way and with the little whip and the reins, and just like that, chariot would be able to go in any direction easily. So the mind can go in any direction easily, can see, can know whatever it is that arises. So this is the nimbleness that we need. And so we use the particular technique or form, mindfulness of breathing, to develop that balance, that brightness, and that deep ease. Like the mind is freely at rest there, but it's got all this energy. So if something needs to be known, it's like this great light just illuminates it. Oh, that's attachment. That's aversion. That's restlessness. That's metta, or loving-kindness. That's calmness. That's serenity. That's doubt. So it just sees things, and it's very nimble. It's just like 
whatever it doesn't need to see anything, but it has this potential potential to see whatever does arise effortlessly. So let me just say a few words about aversion and then I'll open it up and see if people have some examples from your own practice of seeing, craving, and aversion, not just in your sitting practice, but also your daily life practice. Well, let me just mention one last thing about attachment. Um, That one of the real obstacles in meditation practice is when we start to experience pleasant states. I mentioned some of them, like calmness or serenity peacefulness or gratitude or loving kindness or compassion. So if some of those states arise in our meditation practice or in our life, we tend to stop practicing. Because they're pleasant and wholesome, there's a a kind of ignorance in the mind that says, well, I don't need to practice now because this is really good. And so we stop paying attention. As soon as we stop paying attention when there are wholesome states, What do we do? We get attached to them. The mind starts to cling. Oh, this is nice. It's really nice to have all this love in my heart. It's really nice to feel so calm and relaxed. It's really nice to feel all this bright energy, this clarity. We get attached, and when we get attached to that joy, we start making up stories. We don't just stop with, oh, this feels good, but that leads to and wouldn't it be nice to be even more calm or wouldn't it even be nice to be calm tomorrow when I'm in this situation so we start to proliferate on that pleasant experience that wholesome experience which is stressful so we go from a moment of wholesome pleasantness to a moment of stress and suffering even though it may be relatively mild it can get very unpleasant very quickly. Like if you're sitting, I know one of the classics for me is I'd be sitting and after a while things would calm down and I'd start, my body would feel this sort of balance that I've been talking about where I'm really relaxed but there's all this energy and really relaxed. And then a thought will come like, oh, now life isn't a problem. No, I can do all the things that need to be done. And then one of those things will come into my mind. And I'll start to think about, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then I need to do this. And my mind is like so, at first, so creative, like how to do all these things because my mind is quiet and nimble and it just attacks the problem with great creativity. But it isn't long before the attachment starts to manifest in greater, greater ways. Like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, you know, like, yeah, life is going to work. And that's really heavy. And so it's very interesting to see how wholesome states can be very much the cause for suffering if we're not aware of them. We need to be mindful of these wholesome states. To know calmness is just like this. Happiness is just like this. Energy is just like this. We're not trying to do anything with these wholesome, pleasant states. We're just trying to what? What's the goal of mindfulness? To understand. We simply want to understand the wholesome states for what they are as a present moment happening in the mind. 
Oh, calmness. So it's just that knowing, knowing calmness. It's that intimacy. That's it. That's the only thing that needs to be done. We don't do anything with the calmness except understand it or with the peacefulness. We just understand the peacefulness. It's the same, of course, with the unwholesome states, as I talked about. One of the obvious ones is aversion. And this is so clear for most of us with physical pain. I mean, we also have aversion to the painful mental states, but most obvious for us is just the aversion to pain. And the key here is to begin to, to tease out the difference between the intense, unpleasant physical sensations and the thoughts that we have around or associated with those painful sensations. They're two different things. And what we normally do is we have these intense, unpleasant sensations, which we call pain, but we immediately get identified with the thoughts. I can't take this anymore. This isn't fair. Why me? That person doesn't seem to be in pain. When is this going to end? This will never end. How am I going to sit for the next 30 minutes? You know, and I'm sure these are familiar kinds of thoughts. This is stupid. Who ever thought about meditation? All of these are just thoughts, just of various forms of reactivity to the intense, unpleasant physical sensations. So first, if we're already caught up in the aversion, the first thing we have to notice is all this mental activity, this reactivity. We have to see it and see that it's unpleasant. The hating of the the unpleasant th uh, sensations, the hating of it is itself suffering. So if we see that, then that can fall away in a moment. And so then immediately we got to go back to the unpleasant physical sensations. Once the hating of the unpleasant sensation falls away, and it will only fall away for a second, for a moment, we have to immediately drop into the unpleasantness in the body. If we don't, if we just feel the relief of the, the not liking of the sensations, if we just feel that relief and then just kind of space out, in the next moment the physical sensations will trigger more hating. So we go from seeing the hating, the not liking, oh, that's just a thought. It's just hating. Hating is like this. Can I be okay with the not liking? So it begins to break up in a moment. So then we drop into the intensity of the sensations and we do the same thing, except now we're opening to the physical sensations. Oh, intense, unpleasant, throbbing, stabbing, twisting, burning, or whatever the particular texture of that pain is, is like this. Even numbness is a kind of physical pain. Oh, it's like this. And we just notice the location, the place of intensity, greatest intensity, is it moving? Is it intensifying? Is it falling away? And we practice being intimate with it. Just like we practice being intimate with the thoughts associated with the pain, then we practice being intimate with the pain itself. As we're learning to be intimate with pain, mostly what we're learning is to see the different impulses to react to the pain. Because as we're sitting there, learning to be more and more intimate with the physical sensations of pain, there will be a steady stream of impulses to react. 
in these impulses are the pre-thoughts. So before we actually think the thought, there's like that kind of intention to react, the intention to strike out at the pain or to deny the pain or distract yourself from the pain. And we need to see these impulses and not be confused. Oh, that's just an impulse. And then back to the physical sensations. Oh, that's just an impulse. And then back to the physical sensations. So it's a real skill to be here. It takes a lot of practice. So we always start with easy pain. It's not so easy to, to practice with intense physical unpleasantness. Just the ordinary aches in our back and the ordinary achiness in our knees after we've been sitting for a while, or just the feeling of being restless is an unpleasantness we can work with, like wanting to move. So these ordinary pains are the tickles that we have or the itches, because we know they're not going to harm us, so we can really be steady with it. Oh, let me just see. Can I open to this? Or look at the reactivity in the mind. Oh. It's just a tickle, but the mind really wants to move. It really hates this. Oh, it's just hating now. It's just the thought, I can't stand this anymore. That's just a thought, I can't stand this anymore. There's that thought, and then there's that sort of weird, yucky little feeling there on the cheek. And then there's the thought, and there's that. And let me see, can I get intimate with that? Can I open to this? Can I just allow it to be? And you might find that Pain is actually a wonderful object of meditation. In some ways, it's better than mindfulness of breathing because it just is asking for attention. It's such a clear object. The thing about the breath is the more you pay attention to the breath, the more subtle it gets because the more you're paying attention, the more the whole system, the mind-body, begins to relax and everything gets subtle, including the breath. The breath can get so subtle, it feels like it disappears. But the nice thing about pain is it tends to be, I mean, some pain, some pain just disappears too. But some sensations, like an achy knee or a pain in the back, that may be just really steady, just like glowing there. And we can really, the mind can really just see it and see it and see it and see it and get really concentrated, really absorbed. We can really learn a lot about what intimacy means. This complete surrender, this complete undefendedness with something. And especially with pain, it's good because, of course, there's that impulse to defend ourselves, to have a sense of self-arise that says, no, this is enough. I've had enough. Thank you. <laughs> and we just get to play there at that edge. And when we feel a little withered, like, because it is exhausting to do this kind of work, to learn to be intimate with pain, then just open to something neutral like hearing. You can even open your eyes without looking at anything in particular, willing to sit to the end of the time that you've decided to sit for, but the pain's too much now. So then you just open your eyes, you look at the floor, and you just hear sounds. You just let sounds come and go, or you feel the whole body together, so you're not focusing on the specific unpleasant sensations. So I'll come back to this next week and just touch working with aversion and attachment, and then go on to talk about the last three, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. But there's some time left. If people have some examples from your own practice you'd like to share with the group or any questions about the talk tonight? Mm -hmm. Let's say your name again, please. Tom. Tom.
this cat's an Irma. I think that's right. I think we do we do need to find this inner vision as you're calling it or you, or you could say aspiration. And in a way, a lot of the practice, maybe for lifetimes and lifetimes or certainly for decades, a lot of the practice is clarifying the aspiration, like understanding what this path is. So starting the path doesn't mean we understand the path. It just means we understand that there's a need for a path, there's a need for a practice, and we set out. So that's enough. Sometimes the only insight, I, I shouldn't say sometimes, I think almost always the beginning insight isn't what we're looking for, but what we're doing isn't working. That's a profound insight, but that's it. All we know with certainty is what we're doing, what the habits of the mind are, aren't useful. So we go looking for something other than what our habit is. Because our habit, of course, is to be averse to what's unpleasant in life and to get attached to what's pleasant to life. That is our basic strategy that we've ha been handed down, you know, one generation to the next. We hand down that strategy. Practice aversion to what you don't like. Practice attachment to what you do like. Good luck, Sonny. And we, you know, get sent all along our way. And then if we're not overwhelmed by the pain that those strategies involve, if we're not overwhelmed by that pain, then there may come this first insight that the Buddha had that you described, you know. There he was with the silver spoon in his mouth, you know, the perfect life. And he said, wait a minute, this doesn't go anywhere. This can't be the path, getting attached to what's pleasant and averse to what's unpleasant. There's got to be another way. And he didn't know the way, but like you said, he went off looking and talked to the wise people of the day and learned what he could. It wasn't that they didn't have some wisdom. They did have some wisdom. It just wasn't complete. And eventually took what he had learned and uh, followed his own nose, so to speak. And, you know, this is a lot of what we can trust, that we can trust what isn't right. And what that does is we know what not to indulge in, and we know we need to stay open. And this is like a spiritual humility. Knowing that we don't know is quite potent. Because then all of a sudden we start to learn from our experience. But if we think we already know, like I should get attached to what's pleasant, I should push away what's unpleasant, 
then we're never going to learn anything. I mean, we, we might get better at holding a little longer what's pleasant and staying away from what's unpleasant for a little longer. But there's no end to that strategy. Stop to search, you mean? Well, I mean, all we know is the legend. So we don't know the actual guy. But what this is that under that Bodhi tree, see, it's not that he didn't learn anything along the way. He had learned quite a bit before he sat down and said, okay, I think I'm ready to see what, what hasn't been seen yet, you know, to have insight. So the, as the legend goes, that deep insight he had under the Bodhi tree was it for him. He really completely, at that point, completely undermined the tendency to follow the path of attachment and aversion or the path of reactivity. So all of the remaining tendencies to react in that way were uprooted. Now, those tendencies, in a sense, were still there, but he no longer was confused by them. So he might have felt the impulse to get attached to something pleasant, like a pleasant view. Because he still noticed pleasant views, you know, and he still noticed the suffering and the unpleasant things in the world. But he, his heart didn't get contracted. He responded to the pleasant and to the unpleasant in appropriate ways without suffering due to the attachment, due to the aversion. So that's what the legend says. But, you know, it doesn't matter actually... What matters is that we see in our own life we can move in this direction. Like, we know very well, all of us know, that we could start behaving in a way where we get more attached to what's pleasant and more averse to what's unpleasant. And we know what that would lead to. You know, that kind of hyper-reactivity. It would lead to a lot of suffering. And we, knew we, could, we know we can move towards more equanimity you know, it's like a, it's a cliche these days, going with the flow. But we know we can move in that direction. And so it's just an aspiration to move in that direction to the nth degree for the benefit of all beings. You know, because if we move in that direction, then we start modeling that for everybody else. And we can share with each other the lay of the land, like how to move in that direction, what works, what doesn't work. Thanks, Tom, for the comment. Any, we have time for one short comment. If anybody has another thing they'd like to share with the group. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile um, attachment or aversion with memory? Well, yeah. So it's you're right, and you can't stop those memories from coming up. But how you relate to those memories can change over time. So. It's just a matter of mindfulness. If a memory comes up without mindfulness, then we immediately react in the way that we've been conditioned to react, as if that memory were happening right now. So I often give the example of remembering my high school graduation where I did something stupid. <laughs> and for years and years and years, every time that image would come up, I'd go, oh, I did that. And it would be this very visceral contraction, like, I can't believe I was so stupid. And it would just hurt again, like it hurt shortly after. Um, but over time, you know, it occurred to me to practice with that. So then as that image would come up, and it still came up over and over again, but then I would feel the unpleasantness, see the unpleasantness, 
It's like it wasn't just the image, but associated with that image was the pain. It was like a, the remaining pain from that event. And I learned to be mindful to that pain. It was really yucky, that kind of humiliation. And I just learned over a long time. And now that image doesn't come up. It, I can't remember the last time that image. Well, it just came up as I was talking. <laughs> but other than that, it doesn't, it doesn't come up in my meditation practice. It doesn't come up in my dreams and my kind of ordinary moments anymore. Because I've healed that particular pain, that painful memory, by willing to feel what I wasn't able to feel at the time because it was, I was too much, you know, too much humiliation to feel all at once. Yeah, exactly. And then, then it really kind of points to the aspiration for how we live our life. So when we have a really difficult moment, we want to learn to be so intimate with that difficult moment that there's no trace. There's nothing left to work out over time. So uh, an enlightened person, if they lost somebody, like the, you know, using the legend of the Buddha, he lost his chief disciples uh, very close to each other, uh, Moggallana and Sariputta. They died before him. And he likened that to this great loss. But the idea is, th is to completely receive that loss, the pain of losing two close associates, good friends, to really let that in so completely that the grieving happens just in that moment of hearing that they've died. So then there's no grieving period. The grieving period is just that moment. And it's the same with the pleasant experience, where something really beautiful happens, and you it's not easy to really receive something beautiful, but to really receive it, and so there's no trace. Like when the next time you see a beautiful view, to be so full, intimate with the beauty, that you're not thinking about how to get it again, but just to let it be complete in that moment or somebody's hug. You know, I notice when somebody does something really nice, like today, I got this hug from somebody, it's really nice. And I notice sometimes this impulse, oh, I want to, it's like, as opposed to just receiving, just letting that be what it is, and not needing it to be the cause for something else, but just let it be complete. Because what that will do is it will bring us to stillness, whether it's a difficult moment or a pleasant moment. And that's actually the most skillful place to be because then our response to the moment isn't about making something last or making something go away. It's a natural and a wise response that we can have if, we're, if there's no trace. But of course, that's it's not easy. And we'll pick this up again next week. I'm sorry, we have to end here. But we'll pick it up next week. So let's just sit for a few seconds, let go of the words. Of course, a lot of this we already know, so we don't need to get attached to the words or try to hold on even. Some of it will really resonate deeply and it will just naturally come up. Other stuff won't come up, but we'll hear it again in different ways at different times. And we can recall our deepest aspiration to live our lives for the benefit of all beings. This includes our own well-being and the well-being of our loved ones, 
and through many, many ripple effects, the well-being of all beings without exception. So may our practice support the happiness, the peace, and the liberation for all beings. May all beings be at ease. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.